Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you guys again today. I'm excited to worship with you. I look forward to uh, looking into the Word. I uh, hope that you are ready. Are you ready for that? Yeah. All right, good. You guys are getting good. The first couple weeks, nobody wanted to talk. They weren't sure if I really wanted feedback, and now you guys are getting ready and into it, so it's so good to see you this morning and be a part of this with you. Let me encourage you, if you're not uh, already in your Bibles yet, turn to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 29. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning, Genesis 29, and uh, we are going to be looking at verses 15 and on. And so if you would uh, get your Bibles there and get ready, and let me just kind of Lead us in. Uh, I didn't give this story to the earlier service, but I think some of you might resonate a little better with it anyway, just because I I know that I can't be the only one that's had this in my life. Uh, When I grew up, uh, my mom, um, she worked. She's here today, so I'm not going to say anything embarrassing about her. Uh, She she worked a lot, and uh, whenever I was uh, sick or anything, my grandparents took care of me. You know, they lived on Monterey Circle over behind Meadowbrook. And uh, when I would be sick, I remember getting there early because mom had to go to work early at Goodyear. And uh, I'd be little and I would come in and my grandmother or grandfather would already be up. And I would lay down on the couch and I would be looking at the TV kind of this way. And then over here I could see my grandmother and she sat in the recliner until my grandfather got up and she'd sit over there. And um, she'd always have her little foot moving up and down and around and over. It kind of used to drive me crazy as a kid, right? But I remember as I was uh, young, I remember coming in, I'd be tired, I'd lay down, I'd go to sleep. Well, I would inevitably wake up around the time that, like, some game show was on that she was watching in the morning, The Price is Right or something like that. And then uh, I would try to go back to sleep as soon as that was over because you know what comes on about 11 a.m., right? Her stories, her soap operas. <laughs> Or stories. I can't remember which one was which, and I, I remember seeing some of these folks that died three or four times on the TV, you know, and would come back to life. I didn't know much about it, but I could pick up a little bit from the times when I would stay over there in the daytime. And the summer, I had to live through it a lot. I always played outside by that point in time. But I remember doing that and thinking, man, these people are crazy, right? The people in these shows are just nuts, and the family in backbiting, and so-and-so was married to this person. They divorced and married somebody else and all that, and I thought, these folks are just crazy folks. They do crazy things. They, their lives are nuts. And then I realized it's actually kind of a picture of the rest of the world, right? I mean, it's not that crazy. That's why we love it so much. It's a little more dramatic and all the flair it gives, but really it's not that much different than everything else out there. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible is that I don't have to look at a book that has all these heroes in here that make me just feel how bad I am because they're so great. Because the Bible is filled with people that do crazy, kind of stupid things. You know what I mean? They do things they shouldn't do, and they get caught doing them, and things go really bad for them. And I'm not glad that goes on in their lives back in that time, but I am glad to know that I'm not the only one sometimes that makes stupid decisions or that makes bad choices. And so this is not filled up with a bunch of heroes that we can never be like. We're like a lot of these folks in our choices. But the good news is is that it is ultimately about one hero, and his name is Jesus. And we're going to look at how today, a story about a young lady named Leah and her sister Rachel and their husband Jacob and all the other drama that goes on, how we can find that there's still a hero in that story and how we can learn from it. Let me make sure I'm clear here. This book is not about us, okay? But it's written to us, and it's about the Lord. And we're going to see how it points to him today. So I encourage you to walk through it with me. If you've got your notes when you came in, I encourage you to have those out and be ready. 
Uh, let me give you a little background. We're going to pick it up in chapter 29. But before all this, there's a lot going on. Let me give you some background. Two things you need to know. One of the main characters of the whole larger story is named Jacob. Now, this particular part we're going to look at is not exactly about him. It's more about the, the ladies involved. But Jacob is probably the larger picture main character here. And Jacob comes from a family that's been chosen by grace. It's a family that way before his father's father was chosen by God, Abraham, to be the one through whom God would bless the entire planet and all the families within it. He was promised in Genesis 12, you can go back and read in verse 1 through 3, where he says, I will bless you and I will make you into a blessing and through you all the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. And so he blesses Abraham so that he will be a blessing to all the rest of the world. And what he means by that is ultimately he will give Abraham a child who comes. His name is Isaac. We talked about that. And he brings him in and says that through him all the world will be blessed. And what he means is there will be a seed that I bring through your line that will lead down to another seed, to another seed, to the big capital S seed who's the greatest part of the line who is Jesus. Right, makes a promise, I will do this. And then that person, Jesus, will be the blessing. The Messiah will be the blessing to all the world. That's what he's getting at. Well, Isaac had a couple of sons. Okay, so we know that while this family is a family that's chosen by the grace of God, they're not just chosen by the grace of God and everything goes well, but actually Jacob comes from a family that is full of suffering. Okay, and most of it done because of stupid decisions. I'm sure we can all relate at some level to that, right? I mean, most of us have made decisions that we wish we wouldn't have made. And this is what happens to Jacob. Uh, but before Jacob even, Abraham had Isaac. And uh, there was drama there because Abraham was supposed to be waiting for Isaac to show up and to come. The one that God promised that he couldn't wait. And his wife couldn't wait. And so Abraham was given his wife's handmaid. And he had a baby through her named Ishmael. And he had to kick them out. Hagar, the, the lady, and, and their son Ishmael had to kick him out. There's all kinds of drama. Well, now we get to Abraham's anointed son, Isaac, and we see that Isaac has two children, and he's told, he says, the younger will actually rule over the older. The older will serve the younger, the firstborn. Now, usually the firstborn is the heir, right? But here he says, no, no, it's going to be the second one that comes out. There's twins, and so Esau comes out first. He's a red, hairy kid. Okay, any of y'all have any red, hairy kids? Anybody? A few of you have some red, hairy kids? Okay, and then you got uh, uh, Jacob that comes out second. And from the get-go, Isaac loves and dotes on and just overdoes it on Esau. Okay, he shows favoritism in a bad way, partiality in a way that we, none of us should ever do. Now, I know how easy it is. Some days, it feels like it's easier to love some of my kids over the others. You know what I mean? Okay, but, but Isaac took it too far. He enjoyed that, and he doted on Esau. And he just gave it over to Esau, right? Just let it all on Esau. And so it came time at the end of his life where he was going to, because I'm getting old, I'm about to die, he can't see anymore. And he says, I'm going to bless you, Esau. I'm going to give you the first, my, my, my birthright to you, the blessing to you. And that's not God's plan. It's supposed to be on Jacob. Well, by the way, Jacob had already swindled it away from Esau in an agreement over some soup one time, okay? Yeah. Esau, super arrogant kid, and, and Jacob was very deceptive. Well, Jacob dressed up like Esau, put some hairy stuff on his hands and neck and went in, and he smelled like Esau because he had on his clothes, and he felt like Esau because he had animal fur on him, and so Jake, uh, Isaac blessed him and gave him the birthright, okay? That was God's plan for Jacob to be the one blessed, but through all this deception, through all this drama, through all this craziness, well, it doesn't end there, right? What happens? So if your birthright was given away, you'd be pretty mad. 
And as little kids, you kind of duke it out, right? And the first one that bleeds, that other person won, and you're kind of done, right? But when you grow up older, people start killing each other, and it gets nuts. So Jacob's afraid of dying. Esau swears he's going to kill him. So he chases after him, and, and Jacob runs, and he runs to his mama's family a long way away to a man named Laban's home. And he gets to the area, and he's hanging out with some shepherds at a watering hole, and he asks if they know him. Yeah, sure, here comes his daughter now, Rachel. And Rachel comes up. He kisses her on the cheek. That's not supposed to be happening there either. That's not even the right way to greet one another. He kisses her on the cheek, and he like says, let me see your, your, your dad. And so her dad comes running, grabs him, and he tells him all the stuff he's done, all this bad stuff, right? And this should be a key for the story. Laban looks at him and says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh right? Mimicking this Genesis stuff. And he says, I'm just like you. You're just like me. You must be my family. We're both con men. And that's kind of where we pick up the story. All right? So this is just, we haven't even gotten to the good stuff. This is just where we've gone so far. So let's pick up the story. We're going to read, then we're going to pray together. So Genesis 29, 15 and all. We're going to read this. We're going to kind of unpack it. And then we're going to pray together and kind of get in the mix. All right? So you guys ready? All right. Make sure you're still with me. Here we go. Genesis 29, 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsmen, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel's, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now notice a couple of things, right? It says, who's the oldest? Who's the youngest? And it says that Leah had weak eyes. Now, there's a lot of people, and you read commentaries, they've got all kinds of theories about what that means. It's not that complicated, right? We don't know if that, some people say, well, there's a sparkle in the eyes that was very highly sought after in the Middle East, and maybe, maybe it was, but the context, just about always in the Bible, the context determines what the meaning is. Look at it again, this verse here, verse 17. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. What does that mean? It means that when people looked at Leah, maybe she had something wrong with her eyes. I don't know. But if they looked at her and they looked at Rachel, they said, Rachel's the pretty one. Right? <laughs> That's what they said. They looked at her and said, she's the really pretty one and this one's not. Okay? Maybe it would have been like gorgeous and ugly. Maybe it would have been like, she's okay, but this one like, wow. You know, that's the kind of idea. And we know that because look what happens right after that. Look at the next verse. Jacob loved Rachel. He's never met her in his life until now. How could you love her at this point? He loved how she looked, right? A big thing on how she looked. Verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, first of all, this is out of order. Usually, you marry the oldest. The oldest gets married off first, then the second, okay? Also, you don't usually indenture yourself for seven years, three, maybe five years in order to win a bride. But he gives himself, I'll give you seven years if I can have Rachel. Well, Laban said, it's better, listen to his answer here. Listen, he's a con man, so listen to his answer. He said, I want this one. Let me, let me serve you seven years so I can have your daughter Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Did he say yes or no to that? He did not, right? Jacob is love struck and he has given his like cards over and said, I want this woman, give me whatever, I'll do whatever I have to do to get her. And he's like, oh, that sounds good, I'll use that later, right? So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. It sounds like a middle school boy in love with a girl. He's like, I'll do whatever it takes and seven years is nothing. Let me have her, right? 
So after seven years is over, he still doesn't have her. We pick it up in verse 21. Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Now we know he's frustrated because the language here is raw and gritty and not normal, okay, for that kind of time frame. So, verse 22, Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Dun, 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 right? I mean, that's, that's the cliffhanger. And then we, the next day, we watched the rest of that on the soap opera, right? Well, Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said, this gets me every time, right? And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Well, he knows what he's done. Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, meaning the marriage takes a week long for the whole celebration. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Okay, so Leah just got married, has had seven days with her husband, and now, probably even less than that, probably in the middle of the time that he was give, she was given over, she's had a few days with her husband, and now immediately her sister marries into the family, okay? And we're going to see that basically it becomes hell on earth for Leah in her own heart. Let's watch what happens. Look, check it out. So, so Jacob did so, completed the work. Then Laban gave his female servant Bilba to his daughter, Rachel to be her servant. So, verse 30, Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. I mean, that's like the worst possible thing you can imagine. Now, Leah wasn't to be absolved here. She knew probably that Jacob wanted Rachel, and she knew that she was getting ushered in to this dark tent in the middle of the night in the Middle East without electricity. She knew what was going on, Right? But still, she thought, this is my guy now. I've been married off, and here we go. And now, all of a sudden, here comes Rachel. And Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. Now, I can't imagine living in that environment. Let me say this on the front end. First of all, God is not saying it's okay here that Jacob's got two wives. God, just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's what God wants. Just go read the book of Judges. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until the end, and God's never saying it's okay. Okay, this is not the way it's meant to go. Every time you see God talk about marriage, it's always in the context of one woman, one man, together, and nobody should separate that flesh. Always. That's the context. It's never in the context of, oh, if you want to have another, go ahead. In fact, anytime we see that happen in the Bible, it's almost always bad, right? We see that with Solomon had many wives, it went really poorly for him. We see that David had extra wives, it went bad for him. I mean, look at the line here. We've got all kinds of stuff going on, right? Just over and over again, we see Isaac, and we see Abraham, and all the bad things that happen when you add extra people into the marriage bed. Not supposed to work that way. So understand that about this. But now pick it up in verse 31 and see this. When the Lord, this is the turning point, the turning point of the story. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, 
This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Now just so you know for the story, if you follow the story on out, Judah is the one through whom the seed comes who is the Messiah, who is Jesus. So after all this being hung up on the husband, and finally she goes, all right, I'm going to put my hope on the Lord. Then we see Judah come through the line, right? And through him will come Jesus. Okay, so that's good to recognize here. We're not going to spend a lot of time there. But what I want to do is pray for us as we go further. And then we're going to jump into how we can understand this better. Again, this is not about us, but it's to us. And we should be changed according to the truth of who God is in this story, how he's revealed. All right, let's pray. Father, I ask today that you would work in our hearts, that you would give us this information in our mind, but then press it into our hearts to transform our hearts so that we will love you more today as we leave than when we first came in. We first came in. And I ask, Lord, that as you work in us, that you would shape us into the image of your Son so that he would get the glory and all the praise for it. So, Father, would you do your work for your glory in and through us so we might enjoy you and be satisfied in you And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me just tell you, overarching point of the whole story today that I want you to get, if you get nothing else, this first big thing at the top of your page is real simple. God loves the unlovable. God loves the unlovable. If you're taking notes and you miss anything else, don't miss this one. God loves the unlovable. This is at the core of everything we need to understand about the gospel, and we see it here in this story with Leah. But to understand that, let me back up a step, and let's talk about how this works. So I need to give some underlying statements for us to really take it home. We can hear this and just walk away and be like, oh, that's a great story. I mean, it's not a fun story for them, but it's a great story for me to read, right? We can walk away with that and think, man, that was good. I'm going to just go home, and I'll just do something else, turn on the game, watch TV, go to the fall, eat some food, hang out. We can do that stuff, right? I want to take a moment, and I want us to say, how do we then see this in a way that it impacts us? Let me start off with a couple of points. Number one, our our identity is always wrapped up in the object of our worship. Our identity, who we are, is always wrapped up in the object of our worship. The reason for that is that we are made in the image of God. That means that we are made to reflect. An image means to be like a mirror picture. We are made to reflect the glory of God. All his goodness, all his righteousness, all his perfections, all of the good things about God, all of who he is, all that stuff about him, who he is, his character, all that. We're made to image that and who we are. We're made in the image of God. And so we are made to reflect that. The problem is we don't do that well. So picture it like this. The glory of God should shine upon us as we understand who he is and as we are in his presence and what he's done for us in Jesus. And we, therefore, should reflect that glory back to him and also to one another, people who are around us, that should see that glory emanating from us. Now, we are broken, sinful individuals. So the only way that's going to happen is if we are reorienting ourselves back to receive that glory by putting our eyes on Christ, receiving that, and then speaking of that goodness to others. The only way it's going to happen. That's it. Right? So let me put it like this. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11 kind of gives us a good picture of this. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. To understand what it means to find our identity, which means to be wrapped up in the object of our worship, where we find our identity. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Listen up, here it is. In order that in everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In other words, in everything we do, it should be to push out that reflected glory in every situation. The problem is we don't. Right? If we did, we would never sin. Sin means to miss the mark. And we're missing the mark. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And when we fall short of the glory of God, that is reflected in our reflecting something else. We've replaced God as our object of faith and hope and our love, and we have put something else there for that. Now, you may be wondering, well, how do I do that then? How do I glorify God in everything? What does that even mean? One of the guys that helped me to understand this was a pastor by the name of John Piper. I want to read what he says about this. It really just blew my mind a while back when I first heard this. A long time ago, I say a while, a long time ago. He says it like this in one of his sermons. He said, deeper down into my identity, I asked this question. If my very nature as a human is designed to image forth God, how does it do that? He says, when I say how does it do that, I don't mean what are the endless possibilities of behavior or the endless possibilities of thinking and feeling. I mean, what's the one heart act which turns every other act I do into a God-glorifying act? And the answer to that was, by enjoying God above all things or by treasuring Him above all rivals. In other words, the way that we glorify God is by enjoying Him above everything else. So God isn't looking at us as some, like, you know, jerk, old, like, mean God in the sky ready to zap us with a lightning bolt saying, you better worship me or you're going to get it, right? That's not it at all. His benevolent love that issues forth out of his just overwhelming nature shines upon us in such a way that we then get to participate in that glory and his perfections, and we get to enjoy him. He wants to share himself because he's the most glorious and best thing we could ever enjoy. And so he wants to give us himself so we can enjoy him. And when we enjoy him above all things, we're rightly glorifying him in our personhood. So that means like this, if you love to go fishing, you can go fishing and glorify God while you do it. It doesn't mean you got to sing hymns or spiritual songs or any of that stuff. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that when you go do that, you just recognize that, God, you are letting me go do this, and you're just so, I love this thing I do, but really, but I love you because you give the gift. And that's even better. So I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make much of you, because look, look what you let me do today. Or I eat cheery, I like cheery. Who likes Frosted Flakes? I like those better. Anybody? Okay, when I eat Frosted Flakes, I'm going to eat my Frosted Flakes in such a way that I'm going to say, like, oh, these are great Frosted Flakes. And you don't stop there. You go, because God is so good. How did he know, like, that would be so good? Not for me, but in my taste buds, right? Like, he knew, and he blesses me with these Frosted Flakes. I don't get them all the time. When I do, they're awesome. Right? And I get them, I go, God, man, if that's a small taste of how good you are, Oh, I can't wait to be in your presence, right? I mean, this is how our minds are supposed to act, but we don't, and we get off so easily. We get off so quickly. Let me make sure I'm not making this up. I'm going to turn to different passages and tell you a little more about how we should find our satisfaction in him above all things, right? Go to the Old Testament. Let's start there. Psalm 65, a bunch of Psalms, 65 verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Listen, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house. Psalm 107, 8 and 9. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. 
If you're longing for him, he will satisfy you, right? Psalm 145, 16. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. He's like, the psalmist is saying, God, you satisfy everything that's living. You give it breath to breathe, you give it food to eat, you give it everything, that, everything comes from you. You satisfy. He says it again different ways. Psalm, uh, sorry, Psalm 145, 16 says that way. Another place he says that he rains down the rain over the mountains and that he satisfies the entire earth, right? He gives all the earth needs and satisfies the earth. And in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says it like this. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I used to read this stuff in, in the, the Beatitudes and think like, wow, those are great statements, but how do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? And then I read things like 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, where it says, and because of him, talking about God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So in other words, glory in the Lord, Right? He, Jesus himself, has become our righteousness. When it says in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it should say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Jesus, for they shall be satisfied. So when you are redirected to the place that you can be filled, you get to drink from the well that never runs dry, who is Jesus, right? Now, take it a step further. This is going to be a real big push. Are you ready for some toe-stepping? These people are. Okay, you ready? All right, Philippians 1, 20 through 21. Paul says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay? He says, For to me, to live is Christ. In other words, to me, to live is crucifixion. That's what he's pointing to. And to die is gain. And he goes on a couple of verses later, and he says this in verse 23. He says, he says I don't, he's saying ahead of time, he goes, I don't know if God's going to take me or leave me. I mean, he might leave me because I need to edify this group of people. He says this, but my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, let me ask the question. Is it your desire today, right now, to depart and be with Christ? Like if he said, you can come home right now. Would you go like, yes, let's go? Or would you say, no, no, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. I'm, I'm, yes, but hang on, right? Anywhere in the Bible we see that, Jesus says, don't put your hand to the plow and look back. It doesn't work well for you. You're not fit for the kingdom, right? And we go, all oh, those silly people, don't put your hand to the plow and look back. Like, you got to keep, keep following the Lord. But if he showed up today and said, let's go, and you said, but whoa, 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 wait. I need to go over here and do this thing real quick. I need to go over here and see this person one more time. Or I need to go over here and do this... That points us to a problem. If it's not your desire to depart and be with Christ right now, then what is the thing that you want more? That's the question. What is the thing that you want more? Let me put it to you like this. This would be number two in your notes, right? What we want or love most reveals the object of our worship. So what you want or love most reveals the object of your worship. So if you said, yeah, that's great, let's go, but hang on. I need to go over here and like make sure I like see my kids grow up another year. I want to see them get to this age. Okay, that's a good thing to see your kids grow up. But what you've done then is you've taken your kids and you've elevated them to the purpose and the place of most worship. And you take God and you put him second to that. 
and you just get it out of whack. If you think that, like maybe, maybe you say, well, but I haven't seen my grandkid come to faith yet. Maybe they don't love you. And you go, look, you can't make any of that happen. That's all up to God the Father anyway. You can tell them about the gospel over and over again, but God, we know the Holy Spirit has to do the work first, right? So you can do that, but you put them, they're not yours anyway. We are stewards of our kids, stewards of our family. We put them in the hands of the Lord because he already has them. If you want that more than you want him, then you're elevating that person over the person of God. And that's a major problem. It's a major problem. It's not the way it's intended to be. Now, I, I say this as a person that does that regularly, and I have to repent regularly. But nobody's meant to live in that position. Nobody can stay in that position and do well. We're going to fail. Look, this text is not only railing against people having idols, it's railing against our conservative idols that we have that we like and that are good. It rails against the idea of family traditional values, right? Like, Leah just wants to be loved by her husband. She just wants to have kids by her husband for her husband to love her. There's nothing wrong with that, but she makes it an idol because she wants that more than she wants the Lord, right? All those good things are good. When you put them in the place of God, they become not good anymore. Let me tell you this statement. This is a good one. It's a hard one. Idolatry turns divine gifts into disastrous disappointments. Idolatry turns divine gifts into disastrous disappointments. Now, one of my uh, theologians, I like to read old dead guys, he says it like this, that the heart is an idol factory, right? And that idol factory, we continually are making idols out of things over and over and over again. And we, we, we just do it. It's just natural to us as sinners. It's just natural. And one of the problems is that we create idols out of things and when we do that, we put all of our hope in that thing, and it's going to be disastrous and disappointing every time. Look at this in Genesis 29, 25. I'll read it again, right? He's gone to bed with his wife. He wakes up in the morning, verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Disappointing, to say the least, for him, right? He thought he's marrying the, like, what's the words? He thought he was marrying the one that, uh, look, that was beautiful in form and appearance, not with the weak eyes right? And he wakes up, he's like, what's going on? What are you doing to me, Laban? What are you doing, right? He's upset about it, disappointing. Look, Derek Kidner is one of the commentators I like on this, this book, and he says, this is a miniature of our dis disillusionment. This is a miniature of our disillusionment experienced from Eden onwards. Tim Keller, he, he talks about Kidner's statement, and he says, no matter what your hopes for a project no matter what your hopes for marriage, no matter what your hopes for love, no matter what your hopes for a career, no matter what your hopes, whatever, what have, whatever hopes you have, no matter what you hope in, in the morning it will always be Leah. Do you hear that? No matter what your hopes are, in the morning it will always be Leah. I bought a house, and as soon as I bought a house, I didn't own it, the bank owed it, and I had to give money to them, and I'm like, oh, this is not cool, Right? And I knew it was coming. It's a disappointment. I thought it'd be mine, but it's the bank's. You wake up in the morning after you buy something, and you're like, oh, now I've got to change the oil in that thing, <laughs> right? I'll tell you, one thing that's happened to me almost all the time is that whenever I buy something that I think is really nice or cool, very soon after I buy it, I break it in some way. First time I bought a nice guitar, I jammed it into the desk. 
First time I bought a nice car, I backed up into somebody else. Like, it's always my fault. I bought a motorcycle, I laid it down. Like, there's just, you you name it, it happens. I've just learned not to put my hope in things, but I had to be taught that again and again and again, right? Disappointment follows all the time. And if you put your spouse or you put your kids in the place where God is supposed to be in your life, they will disappoint you. They're not meant to be your fulfillment. No matter what they say on Jerry Maguire, they don't complete you. Jesus alone completes you. That's it. That's the only person that can complete you. That's it, right? Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Disappointing. Family ruined. Leah's disappointment. All these times, I have one more kid. He's going to love me now. He's going to hear me now. He's going to see me now. He's going to attach himself to me now. Continually doesn't happen. And here's another thing. Aside Adam Timothy Keller said when talking about this, he said, really great statement. I had to share it with you. It seems like it doesn't fit, but it does. Listen, he says, you never do sin. Sin does you. You never do sin, sin does you. No matter what you do that is a sin, it always comes back on you in a bigger way than what you did that thing. It always does. You've always got to live with it in a way that's way bigger than what that sin was that you originally did. It always actually gets you instead of you getting the sin. The impact of sin on you and others is always greater than your act of actually committing the sin. You just don't do sin. It always does you. Look, Isaac's sin of loving Esau over Jacob ruined the family. Jacob's sin of loving Rachel over Leah. You can read the rest of this story, which is your homework assignment. Read the rest of the story. When you do that, what you're going to find is that continually, Rachel and Leah are just at each other the whole time about who's going to have the most kids. And they start giving their handmaidens over. Okay, well, I'm not having kids anymore, so here, have sex with my, my, uh, my helper and have kids through them. They'll be my kids too. They keep battling it out, so much so that they argue and they buy time to lay down with their husband from one another. It's crazy, right? It just ruins, it affects everybody. It affects everybody so much that later on, all these people, all these kids get all mad at one of the kids because he's seen as special in the eyes of Jacob, Joseph, right? And they go and throw him in a well and try to get him gone and sell him off. And God even redeems that to bring them out of like a bad famine time. It's just crazy how it affects everybody. Sin never affects just you, but it does do you instead of you doing the sin. Look, here's the real truth of the matter for us. And I think if, if you get this point, it helps us to understand the gospel in a real, real way. Listen to this. We all want to be Rachel, but we all resonate with Leah. Everybody wants to be Rachel in our lives, but we all resonate with Leah. We all want to be the one that everybody wants. We want to be the one picked first. We want to be the one that everybody looks up to. We want to be the one that everybody thinks is attractive. We want to be the one that everybody thinks is the coolest teacher or the, 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 the coolest fisherman or the best at this or that or the the greatest at this or that, the one that everybody wants to be around. But even those people resonate more with Leah than Rachel in their own hearts. Whoever you think is the best at something you want to be like, they think somebody else is better than them, and they want to be like that. Nobody's ever really satisfied in it. We all resonate with Leah, but we all want to be like Rachel. Look at it real quick, verse 32 and on. Check this out. Verse 32. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, this is what his name means, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. We all want to be seen, don't we? This is how it plays out, one of our points. We all want to be seen. We want somebody to notice us. We want somebody to notice the things we do. We want somebody to notice how great we have this thing going on. We all want to be seen. And secondly, we all want to be heard, don't we? 
That's part of the biggest problems in churches is that we do things and we go so fast at a pace sometimes we make change or we make a, a new decision that we don't listen to everybody and people get their feelings hurt because they just want to be heard. Am I right? Like, can we just talk about that for a minute? That's in family life too, right? Uh, if I do something real quick without talking to my wife and it's a family decision, I, I, I deserve it when she says, hey, you didn't even listen to me. Right? I just want to be heard. There's nothing wrong with that. But we all want to be heard. We can resonate with Leah. Look at this in verse 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Look, next, thirdly, we all want to be accepted. Am I right? Nobody wants to be the guy sitting by himself at the lunch table. Nobody wants to be the person that's not invited to the party. We should remember that, by the way, church folks, when we have a party or when we go to lunch, right? And we should remember that nobody wants to be that person, so let's make sure we don't let that happen to anybody. Your job when you come here on Sunday mornings, your, one of your biggest jobs if you're a regular attender or a member of this church is to make sure you see people that nobody else is talking to or nobody else is spending time with or that's new, and you go swallow them up in the love of Christ. You just hang out with them and get to know them and spend time with them. That's part of your job, your job. Yes, I will say hey to them, but how many people are in this room right now? There's no way I can do that every day. But you can. It's our initiative, right? Right here, we all want to be accepted. Look, Genesis 29, 34. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi, through whom, by the way, the priesthood comes, right? And lastly, I say, we all want to be loved. That's what she wanted, right? We all want to be loved. We all want to be loved, just like Leah. Rachel wanted the same thing. She gets so mad because Leah has a couple of kids, and then she doesn't have any, and so uh, she gives her, like, her, her handmaiden off to her, and then uh, Leah gets mad because Rachel's having kids through the handmaiden, and she hasn't had any more kids, so she hands her handmaiden off, get a whole bunch more kids, and then Rachel has, or Leah has more kids, like with, with her husband, like through her. And then at the very end, Rachel gets to have kids, right? And in fact, she dies in childbirth on the last one, Benjamin, right? And she just wanted to be loved and be able to give her husband what he wants so she'd be loved the most. We all want to be loved. But let me tell you, this is where the good news comes in. Are you ready for that? Yeah. Here's the good news. In Jesus... We are loved more than we can ever imagine. God loves the unlovable. In Jesus, we are loved more than we can ever imagine. And God loves you not because of what you do or say. God loves you simply because he chooses to love you even when you are unlovable. He loves you because he wants to love you. There's nothing God needed when he created us. He just wanted to love us. With everything within him, he wanted to create us to dote on us and love us. And so much so that he gave us the best thing ever, who is Jesus, even when we were rebels in our sin. Look, Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. It was when Leah finally hit bottom that she saw that the love of God alone can satisfy. Look at this, Genesis 29, 35. And can she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. Before, it's like, I'm going to get my husband this time. Oh, this time it's going to work. I'm going to get my husband. And she says, this time I'm going to praise the Lord. That's what Judah means. This time I will praise the Lord. And then she ceased bearing. She still fell down the hill later. She's not a perfect hero. Only Jesus is. 
But that's how that works. It's when we finally realize we can never earn our way to love that we begin to see the immeasurable value and worth of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. I want you to write that down. Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. This is an addendum to your homework assignment. Okay? Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. I want to read this for you. It's about the Christ who would come, the seed, all this is pointing to. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Listen to this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He had weak eyes. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Listen. Let me put it to you the way this is talking about it. You may think that you're unlovable. You may think that you've done some things, and if people knew that, they could never love you. You may think that things that have been done to you make it so that if people really knew how you are on the inside because of that, or if what those things happened to you, that you would never be loved. I'm here to tell you today, brothers, sisters, non-believers, whoever you are in this room, I'm here to tell you that you, exactly where you are, not because of what you're going to do, exactly where you are, because he just loves you. God loves you even when you're unlovable. He loves you. In fact, you're made lovable because he loves you. That's what makes you beautiful. Because we are broken, and we know it. But he loves us anyway. In fact, let me say it like this. Jesus became one, quote, from whom men hide their faces so that we could be seen by God. Jesus was silent as the lamb led to the slaughter so that we could be heard by God. Jesus became rejected so that we could be accepted by God. He became ugly so that we could be beautiful. He became afflicted so that we could be healed. He carried our sorrow so that we could find true joy in him. He became unlovable so that we could be loved. In Jesus, God loves you no matter how unlovable you are. I want to tell you today, stop holding on to the dream of being Rachel, because there's no such thing. It's a myth. You cannot, you will not ever attain the level at which you think you'll attain through your work or through your effort. Just stop trying. Let's be real with one another. I'm jacked up. Jacked up things have happened to me, and I've made a lot of jacked up choices, but God loves us anyway, and he gave us Jesus, who is perfect. He is the Rachel of the world and of the universe, and there is no other. And the beautiful thing is, is that he loves us so that just like Leah, Leah was the uncomely one, right? But because God loved her when she was hated, she became the one who was lifted up and through her the seed came who would liberate all of us from the, the death and the destruction and the pain and the suffering. Through her came Jesus. And so she was lifted up, not because she was beautiful, but she became beautiful because God chose to love her. And we, therefore, brothers and sisters, if we put our hope and faith in Jesus, we are declared righteous, even though Jesus is the righteous one. And although he's the most beautiful thing in the universe, we are declared beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. And he doesn't love us just to get us into his kingdom to serve him. He loved us so much that he calls us sons and daughters, brothers and sisters with his son, Jesus.
And he gave his life so that we could love him forever. He died the death that we deserve so that we could live the life that only he deserves. So that for the rest of eternity, we could spend it with him and enjoy him forever. I encourage you, brothers, sisters, put your hope, your trust, and all your desire on him. And let's find true joy and true love, even when we're unlovable. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to respond to the Lord. You don't have to come down the front, but I'll be here if you want to do that, and I will pray with you. We will work through it. It will set up a time to get together. But don't wait to deal with him today. If he's working in your heart, meet him at the door. Deal with him in that way. Don't leave without repenting and believing. Our whole lives is about repenting, turning away from other things and back to the one who shines his glory on us so we can reflect him rightly. Let's turn back to him today. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your great gift of your son, Jesus. For we know that apart from him and his work for us, that we would never be able to enjoy you. But Lord, because of him, we can be filled with joy that is inexpressible, that's so overwhelming and so magnanimous that we can't even talk about it in a way that does it justice. So thank you, Lord, for loving us that much, even when we are unlovable. Thank you for seeing us who are weak and broken and frail and for loving us and bringing us to you through the perfect person and work and blood of your son, Jesus. Lord, we come to you now that you would work in our hearts and we would love you back because you first loved us in Christ Jesus, your son. Amen.